I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wiradjuri Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I, I, I always say, and my wife gets frustrated, but I hate going away in summer because I like feeling how the vines feel. And she's like, well, you can, you know, someone can send you a photo or something. And I said, no, I need to, I need to walk them and feel them and see them and just watching them each day and how they're reacting to the weather and changing. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Tom Ward is one of those characters that knows a little something about everything. He is the viticulturalist, winemaker, business owner and operator of Swinging Bridge Wines. Tom simply doesn't do anything by halves. He is one of the most down-to-earth and passionate people in wine and an esteemed voice in the industry. Hi, Tom. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks, Shantae. It's great to uh, be with you today. You know, I was saying to you earlier that I thought about you when I first started this podcast and I thought I've got to get Tom on because he's such a great speaker and he is just a wealth of knowledge. And I don't know why it's taking me so long. So thanks so much for being patient. Well, it's been, you know, a long time waiting for this phone call, Shantae. There's many phone calls in my life I've been wanting or emails. <laughs> and when yours came through, I thought, there's that box to be ticked. So, no, it's great. Like, I always enjoy um, your podcast and it's great to be asked to, um, you know, tell a bit of our story today, hopefully, and people could find that a bit interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no way they can't. I remember when I first met you and I remember we were discussing the wines and then we were discussing a little bit about different clones that you're planting. And I remember thinking, you know, I hadn't quite really kind of done my research and I was like, how come this guy knows everything? Like, what is he, the sales rep, the owner? I just couldn't quite work it out. And then I realized, yeah, you do everything. Yeah, no, um, my wife would say I'm a bit obsessed in some ways. Um, I suppose it's it's probably my whole life, you know, and that's where people say it's what I talk about and, you know, people might say, you know, you talk about wine, that's what I do most days. Most of my phone calls involve either viticulture, winemaking, sales, all those things. Um, you know, they always say uh, find a passion and work in it and you'll never work a day in your life. And, and I never I never sort of think I chased wine, but I fell into it in a way and um, it's sort of one of those things the more I – each day I realise that a blessing is it's something that I do enjoy getting up and um, being around and being part of I suppose of a community. Well I'm so glad that you love it that much because like you said it's it's not something that you can really survive in if you don't love it but where did that first kind of moment with wine take hold where you decided it was something that you really wanted to dedicate yourself to? Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, like everyone, I suppose, well, not everyone, a lot of people in the 90s, we had the vine boom. And I've been very lucky, come from a farming family, and we'd always been, um, you know, in agriculture, and I'd always been interested in farming the land. And, you know, obviously, um, fifth generation farm, or even longer, my father had come from England, but my mother's family had been farming in that area since 1867. So, um, I always enjoyed farming and then in the mid-90s, my father, I remember, remember he came to me and said, we're going to put a vineyard in there. He said, we've had four large um, companies approach us and they've given us these 10-year contracts. Like he said, I'm, I've been, I'm lucky to get a one-year contract or a three-month contract, let alone a 10-year contract. And he said, I've looked through and I can't find anything wrong. And anyway, in 1995, we started putting our first vineyard in and that was just when I started university. Um, and I was like, oh, I might help out here. And it just one of those things that the moment I started was the moment I realized that that's probably where I was going to go. I just enjoyed every moment of it being in the vineyard and being part of the story. Incredible. A 10-year contract. I wonder how often that happens these days. Was it 
any moment that your family, even your mother, was thinking it was kind of a risky move to kind of go into vines when there weren't a huge amount planted in the area? Yeah, look, I think it, it's interesting because my parents originally were in you know, Canoundra, so it was Cowra Chardonnay at the day was going off, you know. Cowra Chardonnay was almost the benchmark in what was happening around the place and that really led the, the craze. Um, so it wasn't, it was just my, it was my mother and my father, but it was actually my uncle and my auntie, so my mother's um, brother. And he my, he was right into it and could see the potential. And he's a bit younger than my father. And he was one of the catalysts that really, Dad said if, if my uncle hadn't been involved, he probably wouldn't have done it. But my uncle really um, pushed forward and was the catalyst. And my father and my uncle both set it up together and both worked in it together. And that was a really nice thing to be part of and to see them. They're both great farmers and both skilled at what they do and see them to apply themselves into the viticulture uh, realm was pretty amazing to watch and to be part of it. And then, you know, as time went on, then to be lucky enough that they asked me to come and work for them was a really nice thing. Tell me a little bit, in terms of your parents, were they wine drinkers themselves? <laughs> I think like everyone, we had cask in the fridge. I remember uh, working out the difference. It was actually it was the difference between we only had white and red. I didn't realise there was varieties. And we only used to have the burgundy and the chablis and the cask in the fridge, I remember. And I remember quite proudly when, you know, finally actually understanding that we had these varieties. And But mum and dad weren't. You know, they no one really in the you know, around area. You always had it as a little, you know, a bit of cask wine or a glass here or there. But I can't really remember wine being a huge part. I mean, I was one of five kids. I don't think mum and dad had time, to be honest. And then, you know, I think that as we got into the wine industry and sort of fell in love, and I now now know mum and dad are uh, very good consumers of wine. Have travelled the world and really enjoy some of the finer things in wine. Um, they've enjoyed that journey, but it's sort of taken it on hand in hand, I suppose, with me and my journey, I suppose, that I've come along and helped them. And But, you know, they certainly, we weren't, um, you know, experts in the wine field at all. We were more just farmers who, you know, enjoyed our craft of viticulture. Well, at the time, we were in loose and lamb, you know, um, cropping and things like that and just trying to perfect an art. And I think that's probably where I got that passion from my father, um, you know, really trying to make sure that we, you know, did it well. Yeah. And, you know, Dad, if he did something, we did it well. And that's where the viticulture side came. But there was no predisposed. We used to get sent. We grew for Southcorp at the time now, Treasury Wines, and I remember them sending their wine list and you could get stuff for two or three bucks, I think, for some very cheap rough reds and we thought they were amazing. So we invested heavily in those. I think my 21st had a lot of uh, those rougher reds and we thought they were amazing. (laughs) I love that. And, you know, whether or not, you know, in hindsight, what kind of quality wines they were. The fact that you thought they were fantastic at the time only fuels that passion as it's growing and as your palate's changing. So I kind of love that. Yeah, no, I think it's a really nice thing. I look at the wines I you know, used to think were amazing and we used to grow for Lindemann's Bin 65 and look, it's an amazing value wine, but I don't think there'd be much Bin 65 in my fridge these days. But we used to, you know, that was the one that mum and dad used to buy to support because they were so, you know, such big um, supporters of the company that was buying our fruit and wanted to tell that story. And that was a really great story in the 90s. I think hand in hand, a lot of the growers were working in with those big companies and you know, that's probably been something that has been lost over the last, you know, decade or so, and it's a bit sad, but, you know, it's also probably been commercialities. Oh, definitely. Tell, fast forward a little bit and tell me from the moment that you were on selling your grapes to the, the decision around deciding to keep the grapes yourself and, and bottle them under your own label. How did that come about? You know, it's sort of a very long story in a sense that we used to be a very large grower 
Um, so mum and dad, you know, we grew a lot for treasury, that 10-year contract. We thought that was great and we planted more and it was, you know, it was never going to end. And the, let me tell you, it ended. Um, we were making, and then I remember my uncle at the time saying, well, we might just get a little bit of wine made. And uh, someone put us in touch with a guy called Murray Smith, who's Canobla Smith Wines. Now, I don't know if you, you know, if, anyone, if you know much about Murray, but he is certainly a character. And making wine, he selected whether or not he'd make your wine. It wasn't really, a, and it wasn't one that was, it was done with him being a patient man, e.g. you had to be patient. When Murray decided to be bottled, it might be a year or two years, it depended on the wine, but he's a very skilled winemaker. And it was very... Um, basic you know a ton here two ton there like very small so mum and dad and my uncle I mean dad used to hand label it on the um and I've got some of the older bottles hand labeled on the coffee table and I can tell you now I don't think there's one label that's straight dad would tell you they're all straight but he's not a man for uh, labeling I haven't haven't asked him to come and help in labeling since I can tell you um but it was that's how we first started so look when you say we we, we did a bit of wine we're doing let's say, two tonne, and we were producing somewhere of eight to 900 tonne of growing for the bigger companies. And that was in those days, and if I look back in how everyone was doing it, they made a little bit on the side, or you may have, if you grew for a big company in the Hunter, you might just say, listen, can you bottle just a couple of barrels on the side for me or something like that? There was no real, um, you know, taking the grape to the winery and that that sort of passion of that small crafting of the winery wine and that's sort of been the massive change so that was where it sort of happened and then I um in my history I was working up in Orange um for a guy called Justin Jarrett who's seesaw wines and I happened to you know when I left university I was going to go anywhere in Australia and I ended up being on the on the same two-way channel as my parents that's how close so you know the old UHF Mum and Dad used to be off to hear on the UHF what I was doing during during the day. That's how close we were. Could have been anywhere in Australia, and UHF, you know, thirty kilometres is generally always you got to be line of sight. So we were up higher in Orange, looking down on Mum and Dad. So I'd come home, or when I first came back from uni, and um, they'd know everything I'd done during the day. So I um, I was working with Justin, and we were growing, uh, you know, planting a lot of grapes, and the Orange region it was expanding rapidly. Um, and I did that for a while, and then as part of that journey. I then decided to go overseas and do vintages and then got into winemaking. Um, so I went and did winemaking over in America. Um, and then the drought of mm, 2003 hit. So very dry period, 02, 03, 04. And my father then rang me and said, um, you're having fun overseas, but it might be time for you to grow up. Um, time to come home and, and uh, you know, uh, become a uh, become a, a wage well a wage earner or provide so I then got married and moved home with my wife um, Georgie and that was a bit of a that was in the 03 and at that time when I came home I'd have said to dad listen I'd, I'd really like to start making a bit of wine and and just doing a little bit so we just made a little bit on the side and as that evolved to through to about 09 we then um, started making more and more just selling a little bit of those on the side and then um, you know nine when the big grape plot really hit dad dad made the decision that we'd actually get out of grape growing per se and just move into own branded product um, and hand it and I hand took over the whole reins of the whole wine business in 08 so that's sort of in a nutshell um, quickly how all that happened and um there's been many of many ups and downs in that journey, but um, the one thing I've been very lucky is, you know, I always have the support of my parents and in saying that, and they really let me have my vision and also my wife in that because it's a, it is a, it's a, a journey of passion, and if you're not passionate, then it's uh, the wine industry can be a pretty tough journey. 
Yeah, that's for sure. I, I love um, that as you start to learn more about Swinging Bridge and more about the story, the the bottle bottlings and and um, kind of ode to your family and its legacy is told within the kind of labels and the stories. So it's really kind of cements, especially if someone's selling your wines or, or recommending them, it really kind of cements the story in because you're you're reminded again of of where the wards and patents came from and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good point. I always say, and I mean, I'm very lucky to every day tell my family story in the cellar door and look, everyone's, yeah, everyone's got family and everyone's got a story. I'm just lucky enough that I'm able to tell that and people are interested in that every day. And, you know, I've been very lucky to have a family that's, um, you know, been really uh, loving and um, enabled me to do what I do and supportive, you know, and that's been an amazing thing. And then to be able to tell that story through our wine and, and probably, I suppose, the passion I've got because, you know, my family's always been uh, passionate about community and where they come from. And that's part of what I've always believed in and want to showcase to, to my children and those next generations. I'm very lucky that hopefully we can cement that in, in history and make sure those stories are told forever. That's definitely something I wanted to touch on, which I'll get a little bit back back to later in terms about community but tell me a little bit about the viticulture of orange like you said you're from Canoundra originally and then there was a boom and you saw the promise of orange what did you enter into in terms of viticulture what was the landscape like and and how drastically has it changed over the years? I, I, I chuckle a little because, you know, I remember we had consultants come over and when I first started there in 99, we didn't even know how to prune. You know, we were really just training them up. We knew how to trellis because we could do that well and we knew how to plant the vines. But pruning, we hadn't quite got to that in a sense, you know. Look, none of us sort of really knew. And, you know, for a young person like myself, um, the only thing you really had to do was say, I'm going to work hard and learn. And that's what we all did. And we all, you know, always really worked co- um, collaborative t- together, um, the region. And I think that's like, so I, I laugh when I say we couldn't even prune really, but we we're always going to learn or we pay the best people to come and t- show us and learn from it. It's always been about that. Um, so the region of Orange, when we first started, I mean, very limited even um, canopy management, um, pruning. I mean, we used to yield crops very high um, compared to what we do. I reckon we'd halve, halve the yields about what we half of the yield now is what we get or we used to. Um, so we've gone from this yeah. sort of, you know what, uh, prune it, you had some foliage-wise there, you just leave them there and maybe you might do one lift. There'd be no trimming unless it got so hairy you had to get closer to it. So you wouldn't trim, there wouldn't be any leaf plucking, there'd be certainly no shoot thinning, so you'd be dropping crop or anything. God forbid that you'd um, be looking to drop crop because if you could, you know, produce crop, you could sell it. Um, and, you know, and that's been a massive change to now where, you know, it's not, it's to me and our brand and what we do and the, guy, the people that I they work with, it's all about the end product and making sure we've got the right product for that because there's no room for um, wines that aren't appropriate for what we want. You know, there's no problem. We don't want wines that are, don't speak of um, the place we're from, the character we're from. And, um, you know, it's the attention to detail that we're known for. That's the main thing, if um, keeping the attention to detail. And I was saying this to someone the other day. Um, I think we do about 11 passes by human um, each growing season we would have used to have done three I think so you know to look at how much work now goes into that canopy management the production you know I, I can't ever remember making a good wine from really bad fruit um, but I can remember making some great wines from great fruit 
and I can also remember making bad wines from grapefruit. So you you know you can't you got to start off with a great product to start off with, and then carry it through um, in, in making great decisions in the winery. But you don't want to start off with a bad product at the start, and that's where I think that growth in oranges occurred. I mean, orange is a pretty unique location. Um, elevation wise so orange is a region's defined as 600 meters elevation and above and we grow up to Mount Canoblis and the majority of our vineyards which is 1400 meters a majority of our vineyards are at 900 you know that's relevant in the sense that that's pretty cool marginal area anything above 1100 you're going to really even struggle to ripen as a crop so it showcases I think and some people don't quite realize the elevation and how cool orange does get um, you know that elevation story is a really important part and that's where we've got the not only a macro climate we operate in orange it's the very micro climates as well that we've seen develop so all these beautiful little sites on hills and in valleys and you know creeks there's so many different areas and, and also aspects as well so a lot of us are working on not only um, you know different aspects a southern facing aspect eastern facing aspect but also looking now even at row orientation a lot of that's even changing and then as you said earlier even clonal wise you know there's been a huge renewal in orange into looking at all the different clones especially in pinot and chardonnay but also then making sure we're even putting them on a rootstock i mean we never put anything on rootstock i mean literally in the the 90s 2000s if you got rootlings you'd just chuck them in the ground you didn't really care if they were certified or not at the time because you couldn't get access to it so it's been that real improvement in every facet of what we're trying to do through the planting material row orientation aspect of the rows um, vine spacing i mean a lot of people are now looking at 1.25 meter spacings between vines rather than we still do it at two meters i mean that was the cost cutting you spread them out as far as you can and then yield them up but that's caused other problems as well and very limited with pruning you you can't have you do permanent cordon rather than um cane prune sort of thing so you know for me the viticulture is probably the most exciting thing that's evolved the most in the region um and continuing to evolve and that's the challenge and i'm so proud to see how much it has evolved and how much everyone's worked together on that yeah, I mean, there's, there has been so much change and, and, and you have been a huge part of, I think, communicating, um, you know, what Orange does best and, and, and why it's unique. Can you give me a little bit of a, for the people listening, a little bit of an idea of those kind of change in daytime, nighttime temperatures and elevation? How does that affect the grapes? Yeah, no, it's a really... Um you know, I said to people, it's a, almost like a six years of viticulture university <laughs> to give you in a 10-minute spiel. You know, it's, it's a complicated thing in a way, but it's not so much that 600 metres is where orange it's, it's the only – orange is the only region defined by elevation in Australia, 75 GI regions, and orange is the only one that's purely defined by an elevation uh, matrix. Everything else is sea, mountains, etc. But every 100 metres you go up – is roughly, well, I always say one degree, but it's actually about 0.7 degree cooler. So if you're going 500 metres up, it's about four degrees cooler. So you're seeing that in the daytime, and then obviously nighttime you've got going to get that even cooler um, temperature. Um, you've also got the north, south, and flat aspect of them. So you've roughly, if you go a, a northern aspect on a flat aspect, will be one degree warmer, and a southern aspect will be one degree cooler. So chucking all those variables in, and then you've also got um, your row orientation, obviously, with that sun, because we do have a high UV index up in orange. Um, but then looking at the grape ripening. So grapes ripen by this, you know, 
heat summation unit. So it's growing degree day. So as a rough rule of thumb, we calculate it from the 1st of October through to growing through to um, our harvest time. So grapes, they're a bit like children. You know, they've got to go through growth phases. So they start at the age of one, et cetera, et cetera. They don't go at the age of one and then suddenly turn 19 and you're going to be picking the next day. They've actually got to go through all those steps when you go through them. So you've got to get your leaf development. You've then got to get uniforescence. They've got to flower. The grapes are then going to form. and So there's all those stages. And what you can farm, make them go faster with is is heat summation units. So just that's what makes the vine tune the photosynthesis. And really the rule of thumb is anything above 19 degrees, you're going to get some form of photosynthesis and some sort of ripening process occurring in um, your grape ripening. So um, above 19, now orange struggles to get above 19 a lot in the October, you know, in those overnight teams. So you're not getting that full 24-hour um, operation of it and some days in orange I mean it's 12 and 13 this week and in orange like it can get very cool um, and then the other thing is the vines once they get over about 34 35 they actually start shutting down to stop evapotranspiration as well so you know they'll actually start stop going over that great you know the ripening so it's trying to get in that middle area and the grapes have to grow these you know accumulate these summations of these heat days to ripen so you know varieties such as riesling um champagne base of use um you know your, your chardonnay or your pinot use a lot less they don't need as much so the cooler climate areas such as orange you'll see a lot of those prevalent varieties such as riesling um, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Gouertz, Tramina, Pinot Gris, they lead less, whereas your Cabernet and probably and your Shirazes as well need a lot more heat summation units. You can obviously vary that, vary that or some of the areas are more patient. You know, so Grenache, some of those bigger, bolder reds, they need more heat summation. So that's why you see those varieties out of orange that we do do. But the beauty is we've also got some lower elevations out at 600 that the, the, the Shiraz and Cabernet do ripen at. Um, you know, you just got to find the right sites and all that. So that is such a – orange's biggest problem is it's so varied, <laughs> which is sort of a great problem. But on the other hand, it's not just one singular variety that defines us. And that's always been oranges. That's not a, I mean, it's a great problem to have, but it's always been the thing about oranges. It's sort of from 600 down up to 1100, you've got, you know, big bold reds at 600 up to trying to, um, trying to ripen sparkling base, you know. So it's such a varied story. And we're really lucky as a, you know, as a winemaker and a viticulturist to have that. Um, but it, it's um, sometimes, you know, you do tear your hair out thinking, golly, we've got all these different things to think about. And it's so many macro and micro climates to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that for people that are, are driving out to Orange and, and maybe listening to this podcast on the way and thinking about where they want to eat dinner and what wineries they want to visit, it's hard because, like you said, you can't kind of just take a bite and think, okay, now I've I've digested exactly what Orange is all about. It really changes from cellar door to cellar door and, and what they've got planted and what their philosophies are. But you've really summed up beautifully um, you know, what Mount Knobolus does in terms of, of elevation? I, I, I hope so because, I so, um, yeah, I hope so because it is quite, you know, when you go into that viticulture and, you know, the GDD. But the one thing I would say to everyone is make sure you bring a jumper because you may need it any time of the year. Uh, you know, it's one of those places that you don't want to get caught. I always have a jumper in the ute at any time of the year. You can always get caught out. So I always have one in there and a rain jacket. <laughs> 
That's a very good idea. I didn't do that the first time I came and it got down to something <laughs> crazy minus something ridiculous at nighttime. And I, I luckily I was um, at a place that had wonderful heating and, and I was okay, but <laughs> we weren't doing any vineyard walks at night. You learn that lesson once. Yes, you learn the lesson once and you never make the mistake again. <laughs> I love that. Now, when you talk about yourself, how do you describe what you do? Do you say that you're a viticulturist first or a winemaker or you're an owner? How do you kind of put down all the jobs that you do? And, and, and how, if you introduce yourself, how would you, what would you say? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I probably take that back to when it's not that I'm good, arrogant. Uh, what am I good at? You know, is probably where I look at what am I, what do I think I'm feel the most comfortable in? And that's walking the vineyard. So, you know, that's probably my great love or what I would argue I feel most at home with and where I feel that um, I can really add value, not add value, or really create our wine. Don't get me wrong, there's other, the yeah. other aspects are extremely important, but that's the one area that um, sounds bad. I wouldn't outsource, I suppose, in a sense, walking the vines. Mm. Um, doing the viticulture, I, I, I always say, and my wife gets frustrated, but I hate going away in summer because I like feeling how the vines feel. And she's like, well, you can, you know, someone can send you a photo or something. And I said, no, I need to I need to walk them and feel them and see them and just watching them each day and how they're reacting to the weather and changing and viticulture. You know, I think winemaking sometimes can be a bit more fixed and you've got them in, you know, you've got them inside a, a winery. It's a lot more process, you know, driven. Whereas the vineyard, if you ever, you know, think it's all easy and you've got a, a fixed process, you'll throw it out the door. You know, you've got to be able to be nimble on your feet and constantly change and evolve to the season. You know, no season's the same. We've just seen that with 21, 22, 23 being extremely cool. After 17, 18, 19, 20, they're extremely warm. And if you, and then you also get rain events and all these things that coming through the season, you've got to vary and, and, and continually be proactive. So if, you know, if you ask me, where you generally say vineyard, I suppose that covers a lot of things, but um, I'd love to think that, you know, um, people remember remember that vineyards is where the, the great wines are made and that's something that we try to really specialise in and make sure we put that extra time in because, you know, if you don't have great fruit, as I said earlier, you, you're, gonna, you're not going to make great wine. It's true. And I've heard someone once say that, you know, if you really want to, you know, meet a good viticulturist, look at their hands because they'll always be filthy. And I feel like, you know, you you are somebody that not has filthy hands, <laughs> but that is at home in the vineyard. And when you speak about it, your eyes kind of light up. And I've always enjoyed that because it's the, you know, the, the tiny um, difference between leaf and, and bunch structure that, you know, when you get going, I just think, oh, this is, this is where he, you know, he just absolutely thrives. Yeah, I love taking people out into the vineyards and we do do um, tour groups. Oh, well, you know, when we do some um, uh, cellar door tours or we, part of it's a vineyard tour and, you know, I always think, oh, God, no one's going to really be interested and, you know, what we take or I might be just showing them what we're doing and just the people are just are fascinated and then, you know, might start one question to the next and 
I feel very comfortable having those discussions and you sort of think, oh, no, I won't have much knowledge about this. And then you suddenly realise that, you know, the 25 plus years or 27 years now I've been in vineyards, um, you know, you do know how to deal with vines in training, pruning, very comfortable in understanding what the vine's looking like, feeling like and working with that and, um, I, I suppose I've done it all virtually all my life, so it's not something I think too much. But people just, uh, you know, amazed at how comfortable probably I feel in the vines, and hopefully convey that to people because, you know, it's something that you know they're a living, they're a living plant, and you know, working with them and dealing with them, you know, you've got to, you know, be adaptive to what they want and what they need because in the end we're trying to bring a product and. and make sure that that end product's the best that we can then deal with it at the next process, which is a bit more fixed in turning that sugar into an alcohol product. Mm. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the wines that you make, because you have quite a few varieties now and you have some beautiful bottlings of signature series down to your hashtag series, tell me a little bit about is there a wine that you, you know, you find challenging each year or that you take really seriously and, you know, is kind of your baby? Um, I always get, yeah, I always get asked what my favourite wine is and I said it's a bit like children. They've all got their moments. Um, look, I think the biggest one that um, is probably troubling, not troubling me, keeping me up at night at the moment is probably Pinot. And I don't say that because I don't think we're—I um, don't think we've got a pathway forward on it. It's more from the sense that it, it is such a tricky grower, and just when you think, yeah, I've got this sorted, but it doesn't like growing up straight. You got to work really hard in the vineyard. It can throw massive crops. You got to thin, and then terrible flowering, and then you've got to be so patient with getting it ripe and getting, you know, and then it's such a fickle variety. So it's probably the one that. Um, I'm passionate about trying to define Pinot Noir from Orange. I'm passionate about where that stands for the region. Um, it's something that, uh, you know, I've been trying to lead for, you know, 10 years plus now, and we've put a lot of different clones into the ground. We've put a lot of effort into the viticulture. Been down to Mornington, Yarra, Tassie, New Zealand, um, you know, over to Burgundy, really trying to make sure we, you know, can get the knowledge base out of it all and make sure that we can take that and you got to adapt it to your region, you know, orange, high elevation, high UV. So it's got some, um, you know, obviously got the, you know, diurnal differences in temperatures, the highs and the lows that we do do. So you've got to make sure your viticulture is adaptable to that. Um, that's probably the wine that, um, you know, we put a lot into the oak program, um, fermentation, you know, cold soak, you know, trying to make sure we're using the right oak. You know, all those things. So it's probably the wine that um, I'm excited by working on it further um, and evolving quickly, and that's a really nice thing, um, you know. But if you, you – in a nutshell, if there's a wine I probably think that defines us at the moment, it's probably some of our single vineyard chardies. It's probably where I'm, um, you know, probably looking at them – kind of happy or kind of um proud you know and that's you know someone that you know i'm not i just sort of look at them and i look at a lot of wines but for me it's something i look at it and go wow i think we're really showcasing what orange can do here and that's exciting because i didn't think we'd ever get here as quickly or as where we are at the moment and that's pretty nice yeah i i think it's interesting because it's always good to look at 
the, you know, the, the varieties that you produce in the region and then how they kind of benchmark against other regions as well because it showcases their differences or all of the likes. And you do a lot of that by, you know, your judging, but also by your experience in different associations. And I wanted to bring up the fact that you were president um, for New South Wales Wine for over six years, six, seven years. What did that role teach you? Um, it taught me so much. Um, you know, it's one of those things that's great to do. I used to be in a very lucky opportunity where I'd sit in meetings with ministers and, you know, I mean, not that it's it's a non-paid role and, you know, so you're only there if you're passionate. And I think, you know, you sit there with government ministers or I've done a lot with the governor of New South Wales and who's now the governor general and these people who really um, could see your passion. Uh, they really enjoy your take on it because they understood that, you know, it was an association that was run by winemakers and grape growers and we really, uh, we didn't have to be there, um, but it enabled me to get skills that I think if I'd gone into the corporate area, I would never have got, you know, as a, you know, I was very lucky, um, lucky or persistent or stubborn, I think they're all probably what it was, but I guess kept putting my hand up to help. Um, and I always say to younger people, you know, when they say, oh, I can't get in or there's not an opportunity, I'm like, did you put your hand up again? And they're like, oh, I'm saying, you keep going. Because I never, people won't say no. And if they do, ring me and I'll make sure I'll ring someone and say, get out of the way. We've got to let younger people. And I was very lucky in that chance. I kept putting it up. I had great mentors like David Lowe from Low Wines in Mudgee, um, you know, who really let me have opportunity, um, get out there. I had some... Um, you know, really great people that allowed me to learn, um, you know, on the job and uh, great structure. I had some great executive officers that really um, supported me. Um, it's great to be out in the front of the meeting, but you need someone to, one, take the notes, action things and, and deliver. And I've been really lucky to have that support. And then I had great committees. So, you know, I think New South Wales wine has come a long way as, um, you know, dealing with, you know, you got to remember New South Wales wine only exists primarily for one region and that is reason and that is to deal with the New South Wales government or what is relevant to the New South Wales government so you know that's the state based stuff like department of primary industry so we had to do a lot with the the smoke issues and a lot of those things the fires in the floods so you know to be dealing with you know I was very lucky to have these relationships with ministers and I mean Noel Blair who was the minister of ag at one stage you know I still remember on a Sunday morning we had fires up on the mountain in Mount Canobles in Orange in 2018 and phone rang and anyway, it was Niall Blair and he said oh you know he had some fires and he anyway I mean and those people had a great passion for their job and Niall said well here's my personal number Tom ring at any time you need anything knowing full well I wouldn't but you know that when, when you've got a minister ring you and saying here's my personal number in 24 hours a day you can ring it it's a pretty amazing thing for you know just a, just a humble grape grower you know winemaker and it was a pretty amazing experience to deal with those people that said listen we're here to help and whatever you need but you normally don't ring them and ask them for you know a simple thing you are generally asking them for big favors if you did do it and uh, that was it was a pretty amazing opportunity uh, for me, and also, I, I think I also felt the pressure of that because, um, you know, you've got other people's businesses, lives sort of that you're dealing with and representing, and um, it's something I always made sure I, I took very seriously um, in that representation because, you know, these are people's livelihoods you're dealing with and you've got to constantly be representing them and showcasing that and also be passionate to, you know, those levels of government or, um, you know, even on national associations because we deal with into the Australian wine industry and also some of the research bodies to make sure you can convey that 
you know, where these people were and the passion they had and how these issues or what were happening was affecting their life or how we could, you know, help them uh, further things. So, um, yeah, I mean, I still remember chairing meetings as I was drafting sheep one day because we used to have sheep farms and thinking, wow, here, you know, what, if they only knew I was out drafting sheep, try to also survive in the wine industry and do these things. But no one cared. They just cared that you were passionate and wanted to lead. And um, that was the main thing. And I've never had an opposition from anyone about it in the sense that they were just happy that, you know, you were passionate and wanting to showcase and lead the region. I think that's so wonderful and I particularly see that in Orange that there is a real banding together of of brands and you know maybe maybe someone could say that that you know we get the best kind of viewpoint in that everyone's getting along but I, I for what I have seen and heard over time I really see a, a group of people from Orange that all kind of champion each other for for the region's benefit and um, I think that's perhaps maybe why Orange has made such amazing amazing steps and progression in the last few years. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I remember years ago, I gave New Zealand, I caught up with the Central Otago guys and I just said it was going through. They, you know, that was oh, 10 years ago and, you know, they, they were killing it, you know, around the place and doing really well. And I sort of said, well, how do you handle this, you know, that another brand, and they caught, and, he, and one of the guys said to me, we call it cooperation. So you cooperate, but you are in competition. And it's something I took for away from that as a really important lesson that, you know, we're always cooperating and working together. But, you know, if I'm if you're out in trade and selling wine, well, you've got to sell a product and, you know, you're in competition. You don't do competition in a sense you try and undermine someone. But if your wine gets on a list, good. You're in, you know, that's a great thing. And I always say to anyone, you know, I go out to a restaurant or a bottle shop and I see a local wine on there, an orange wine, and I smile because I know that that, uh, restaurant or uh, bottle shop has already understood the regional story of a region like Orange and that's only going to make it easier for someone like myself. It doesn't mean I need to budge them off the list, it just means they're open to that conversation and you know we've been really really lucky in Orange to have a lot of really really good leaders and ones that are willing to put their hand up and it's numerous people that have been able to do that and that's a really exciting thing because um, you know if you can't you know, you can't all do it with one person. And that's where Orange has been lucky to have this critical mass of a, a lot of people that um, are willing to put their hand up. And, you know, even now I look at the committee and I've just um, stood down from president of the Orange Regional Vignerons Association. But we've got all these young people that are putting their hands up and getting engaged. And I can't tell you that many regions that I know around that that's the case. And that's a really, that's probably the thing that most excites me the most is to see all these younger people and, and other people that haven't been involved now getting involved. And that's a really exciting thing. Oh, it's incredible and it and it's, it says so much about you as well to to be backing you know the the next generation of who's going to lead the way forward and i agree you've got some really exciting dynamic you know shockingly young people um that are taking on massive responsibility and it's so so awesome to see yeah, no, I'm a. I always said, everyone, I'm the old. It's. I always said when I was forty, I wanted to be off most uh, all the committees. I'm a bit older than that, uh, at forty six. But oh, I'm sort of happy that we are moving aside. But that doesn't mean you go forever. You're there to help and come back in if needed, or or vary. But I certainly don't want to be the one that's holding that up or stopping that. But I want to continue the knowledge base and you know I've, I've, I have the opportunity for the younger ones, and it's the same in our business. I've got some amazing staff, and they're all really involved in all the local community organisations and it's such an important thing because you, 
that's what keeps us going is the community. And if we don't have that, then we are nothing. They're the ones that have supported us and part of what we've done over the many, many years and we'll be there in the long term. So we've got to always constantly remember that. You know, and I always said to my guys, community first, profit second. Because if you don't have that, you know, if you want to profit first, community second, you're going to be pretty hollow in the end. It's a wonderful philosophy to have. And, uh, you know, you always put your, you know, money where your mouth is. You always kind of are the first to kind of just support lots of people. And that goes not just for the region of Orange, but all of New South Wales. And and uh, it's a, yeah, such a testament to why your brand is so successful, I think, is because of just the way that you lead, you know, your your company and, and, and the people around you. So amazing job. Oh, thank you. You don't need to say that. But I mean, it's, you know, it's nice to hear that from some of my peers that that is, you know, um, what they see, but um, you know, you, it's you, I don't, you know, we just want to keep doing the great things that we you know, can do, and hopefully be part of a great community. Yeah, well, I did call around and ask for some dirt on you, and I didn't really manage. I mean, Jeff <laughs> Byrne made some things up, but I didn't manage to get anybody to to tell me anything terrible. So <laughs> they must respect you. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you probably, um, yeah, no, they probably kept some of the stories from uh, university days away. Um, I was very lucky to be going to university. University with guys like Jeff Byrne, who's now at Byrne Farm in Orange, and Adrian Sparks, who's up at Mount Pleasant, and Liam Anderson from uh, Wild Duck Creek, and we had some great times. Um, you know, I say those days at university, you know, doing post, uh, we did it as all external students. We had no had no money, but we had plenty of access to plenty of wine, and that was the great thing. And everyone was always so forthcoming with that, and that's sort of a generosity even at that stage, wine swaps and all those things. So, um, look. It's nice to have some other people say some nice things about you. Um, it's nice to be part of it. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's what people see because that's what I hope um, we can convey and do. But it doesn't, um, you know, we've, got to, we've just got to keep pushing forward as a region and, you know, keep united. And I think Orange is doing that really well. And also New South Wales and even the Australian wine industry because there's plenty of negativity out there. But if you focus on negativity, you're not going to get anywhere and people have got to be actively thinking about how they're going to become sustainable. Yep. Yep. That's no truer words been said. And I have to say that group of, I was going to say boys, but men that you talked about going to university with, I feel like they're the antagonizers. Like they are the troublemakers. So you had a, you had a, a very particular year, didn't you? <laughs> Yeah, look, I don't know. Look, um, there was some. Uh, it was sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you get unlucky. So I think you can work out whether it's lucky or unlucky. But uh, I'm pretty lucky to have them all as friends that I speak to often or convey and see. And the great thing about the wine industry is you keep running into people over a long period of time, and everyone's very united and encouraging. And you know, say we do well in something, the amount of text messages or messages I get from the industry is just amazing. You know, people don't have to do that um, but it's a nice thing that you know it's like getting birthday wishes from people um, you know it's a nice thing EJ your birthday yesterday Shantae so happy birthday by the way but um, you know it's always nice to get those um, wishes and, and you know you don't do it for those but it's nice when people acknowledge and they um, have that uh, presence to think that it's worth giving you some acknowledgement of that and um, celebrating with you. I totally agree. I totally agree. Tom, to learn a little bit more about your palate and how you work, if you could only drink three drinks for the rest of your life, what would you drink and why? 
Yeah, it's a great question. It's also good. It's obviously got to be wine. Um, <laughs> I probably need to uh, make sure I could, it could just be New South Wales wine and then I'd be right, even orange wine, but I probably need to be uh, a bit more diverse than that. But I, I suppose if I think about bottles that define me or wines that will, you know, you, I had I was very lucky to try a DRC, so Domain Romani Conti, SSL 67, and I was lucky enough to be chosen to do the Lenev Institute back in 2012. And it was one of those wines, I remember always people hearing these wines that define them and, you know, showcase them and all those things and they got them into wine and I never was like, yeah, that would never happen. And I remember having that wine and a blind options at dinner and just going, I get it, you know. That was one of those wines I had once and was like, wow, I can see where Pinot can go and that was the 67. Still, to this day, I can remember everything about that wine and they always say that if you can remember about a wine, it defines you and that emotion and that time and that locked that up for me. Um, probably another wine that probably, you know, I'm also very passionate about Chardonnay, but um, Knobla Smith, so Murray Smith, you know, used to be Knobla Smith. Now it's been taken over by a great guy called Jonathan Matic, who's doing amazing things and called Knobla Wines. But it was an 04 Chardonnay that he made. And um, I think that uh, Vanya Cullen used to run a Chardonnay challenge and it went over there um, to that and cleaned them up. It was one of those wines first defined I think what orange could do with Chardonnay and I still remember having that wine and thinking here we go this is a wine that I think orange can really do um, and then probably I mean we alluded to the history of wine I've also you know New South Wales such an amazing history but the hunter probably being the leader in that again I've been really lucky to see um, some really classic um, hunter you know, I used to call them, you know, uh, Hermitage wines or, um, but a Tullock 53 wine that I was as sure as that um, we had at New South Wales Wine Awards, or I was very lucky to have when we think it was a 49 O'Shea, um, a wine that, you know, whatever it was, 60, 70 years later, and still looked amazing, you know, and I've sat some of those old bottles I've had, and you sort of go, oh, yeah, right, look good, it's a moment in time, but it's had better days. And those two were pristine examples of a wine that's. Uh, ageless and tell a story and you know I think in the wine industry if we're not you know sometimes I think some of the wines have been made forgetting to tell the story of what we've done and the vintage and the year and what history's about and it just becomes about trying to you know whack the wine out in a sense you know about what's the cogs and margins and all those things and I think if we ever if we forget that place and history and time where we've come from then uh, the winery is going to be a pretty lonely place and that's constantly what I say to people is, you know, we're putting a time stamp on what we're doing and I see that, that that's when the hunter were doing those great wines, you know, and they still are, they, they really starting to nail that. That was a great time and I think it's a really amazing, those 50s and 60s, um, you know, reds that you can see out of the hunter. If you ever get a chance to anyone, make sure you, you know, go and have a look at them because they are timeless and they tell a story of that region and where it was coming from. Three great wines and... And as per usual, you're a fantastic storyteller and I love chatting to you. I always learn something and I always come away with more appreciation for for the world we live in. So thank you, Tom, for joining me. Uh, I love picking your brain. I love hearing more about what you're up to. There's always something something weird and wonderful that that's, you know, making you excited and uh, and it's fantastic to hear. So thanks for spending some time with me today. It's been a pleasure, Shantae. I always enjoy um, talking to you about wine, um, the world, the people, um, and also anyone. If they're ever coming out to Orange, please come out, discover the region. Um, look, if you know, Orange has got some amazing websites to describe what we're doing, how we're going, and it's a story of um, wine and food and culture. And uh, encourage anyone to come out, come and have a 
come and have a chat and uh, have a look through. But I, I think don't think you'll be disappointed. It's a region that I'm not going anywhere, so I'll be out there and I look forward to seeing people out there. Absolutely. And stop by Swinging Bridge Wines because there's fantastic Rees, the sommelier out there, wonderful chefs, and you've got an absolute killer lineup of wines. You'll end up being there for hours. And uh, I'll say I told you so. Oh, thank you, Shantae. Well, it's always great to have customers. It's always great to be having people that want to taste what we do, see what we do, and enjoy what we do. So um, if, we can, if people want to come and do that, we'd love to host them. So thank you. Sounds awesome. Thanks so much. Cheers to you, Tom, and I'll chat with you later. Thanks, Shantae. Look forward to catching up soon. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shantae Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.